Before we begin today's episode, we'd like to thank our corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, for their generous support. Fiduciary Trust International helps families with significant wealth manage that wealth and the complexities that come with it across the generations. Building your legacy is about more than just managing your investments. Fiduciary Trust International helps you look at your wealth holistically today and plan effectively for your future. They will help you structure your wealth so you can enjoy it now and provide maximum benefit to your heirs and the causes you care about. If you're looking for trusts, estate, and advanced tax planning services to help you grow and protect your wealth, check out Fiduciary Trust International at fiduciarytrust.com. Renee Fleming, Joyce DiDonato, and Kelly O'Hara join forces in the Met's world premiere production of Pulitzer Prize-winning composer Kevin Putz's The Hours. Find out more about this exciting and important new work on this week's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is made possible via generous funding from its corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, and support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. Travel with us. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is pleased to announce the return of our travel program. This autumn, join fellow opera lovers for a lyric festival at sea from Rome to Malaga aboard the Deluxe La Liral. Sailing September 30th through October 8th, 2023, this voyage is designed to explore the artistic intersection of architecture and music through visits to concert venues across the Western Mediterranean. With visits to Teatro dell'Opera, Palau de la Musica Catalana, and Teatro Principal de Palma, this is sure to be an experience you won't want to miss. For more information or to book your cabin, please visit www.metguild.org travel or call us at 888-400-1082. Inspired by Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway and made a household name by the Oscar-winning 2002 film version starring Meryl Streep, Julianne Moore, and Nicole Kidman, this powerful story concerns three women from different eras who each grapple with their inner demons and their roles in society. I'm your host, Elspeth Davis, and on this episode, we join Guild lecturer and musicologist W. Anthony Shepard as he discusses The Hours. The Hours, by composer Kevin Putz and librettist Greg Pierce, is both very simple to describe and amazingly intricate and complex. The plot plays out one June day in the life of three women separated by decades. 1923, Virginia Woolf is attempting to write the novel Mrs. Dalloway, feeling trapped in a suburb of London. She contemplates suicide on a walk, hosts her sister and nephews and niece for afternoon tea, and then ends the day feeling grateful for her husband, Leonard. 1949, Laura Brown feels trapped in her conventional married life 
and would prefer to spend the day in bed reading Mrs. Dalloway. She bakes a birthday cake for her husband, leaves her son with a sitter, and checks into a hotel room contemplating suicide, but then returns to her home, ending the day temporarily resigned to her life and feeling gratitude for her family. At the end of the 20th century, Clarissa Vaughn, a New York book editor, is planning a party for her long-term friend and former lover, Richard, a poet ill with AIDS, with whom she has been caught in an endless cycle of caregiving. She leaves home to buy flowers near Washington Square to check on Richard, returning late, later and witnessing his suicide, finally ending the day by meeting Richard's mother, who turns out to be Laura, and by feeling gratitude for her lover, Sally, and for life itself. The Hours is Putz's fourth opera following his Pulitzer Prize-winning Silent Night of 2011, which was also based on a film. Though the genre appears to be experiencing a resurgence, Putz mentioned to me that back in the 1990s, he would never have predicted that opera would become so central to his career. When I asked him how the music of the hours relates to his three earlier operas, he responded, quote, I am a composer who searches for the right vocabulary for each project, rather than searches for projects which would fit the narrow limits of my voice. It's most interesting for me this way. The vocal writing in this opera is more lyrical and longer lined than ever before, but when one writes for such voices as Renee, Joyce, and Kelly, there is no other way. One striking feature evident in Puss's oeuvre is his references to earlier music, from Machot to the Baroque period to Mozart and Beethoven and on to Ravel. I'll return to the relevance of that point for the hours later. This is Putz's first collaboration with Greg Pierce. Rather than relying on rhyme, Pierce created poetic text by emphasizing alliteration instead. The libretto frequently verges on Wagnerian Stabrheim, as in Act 1, Scene 11, when the chorus assumes Laura's self-reflective and self-critical inner voice as she looks at her son looking at her in a line with four W and four M sounding words, waiting for me to molt into your mother, wondering who I am, this quivering woman wearing your mother's robe. All operas are interdisciplinary, and many operas involve reworking earlier literary texts. However, the hours is exceptionally rich in its layers of artistic sources and genres. Pierce's libretto is masterful in its distillation of these sources and in teasing out and exploring multiple connections and additional meanings. Despite its title, Wolfe's 1925 novel is not fully focused on Mrs. Dalloway. Instead, we slip into and out of the minds of multiple characters and, those in, uh, and thus encounter multiple narratives and multiple pasts and perspectives on the same events. This passing of the mic from one mind to another in the novel, interlacing multiple streams of consciousness, is sometimes very seamless and at other times in the novel suggests a more complex simultaneity. In fact, 
a reader should be forgiven for not always noticing when Wolf has moved from one character's mind to another, or at least that's what I told myself when I struggled reading Mrs. Dalloway. Michael Cunningham's Pulitzer Prize winning 1998 novel, The Hours, is both simpler and more complex than Wolf's structure. Cunningham created three stories set in three different time periods and thereby suggests a temporal layering, even though the novel cannot achieve simultaneity in the ways available to opera and music, which we'll explore. Cunningham skillfully transported and translated Wolf's story and character Clarissa to his present day in the 1990s and then created narratives for Wolf and Laura with intricate connections and with both obvious and more subtle parallels between the three stories and sets of characters. The 2002 movie, based on Cunningham's novel, opens with multiple abrupt cuts between the three settings, showing off film's ease at jumping between time worlds. In a, only a few instances does the film suggest that the three time periods and characters commune with each other, something that on the contrary is central to this operatic version. For example, in the movie, Virginia seems to see that stunning image of Laura's hotel room being flooded by water as though Laura is a character in her mind. At another moment, after Virginia announces that it will be the poet, the visionary who must die at the end of her novel, the film cuts to Richard in the 1990s, making his fate explicit. However, it is Philip Glass's music that establishes the fluid connection between these three worlds as his score remains consistent in style throughout. I note that the one prominent use of diegetic music in the movie is from Richard Strauss's Four Last Songs, which Clarissa listens to in her uh, Greenwich Village apartment, um, a composer and piece relevant to Putz's opera as well. I feel that the Clarissa of the movie, played by Meryl Streep, is actually the most operatic version of any of the characters in terms of her emotional outbursts, but I'll save discussion of the movie for another time. Pierce's libretto combines aspects of both Wolfe's and Cunningham's novels, as well as drawing on the movie, and as we will find, Fellow McDermott's staging and Annie B. Parsons' choreography both clarify and reveal further parallels between the stories and characters. Some of the parallel, parallel narrative structures are clear when you first experience this opera. Virginia writes Mrs. Dalloway, Laura reads it, Clarissa lives it. Each woman has a concerned spouse as well as an unexpected visitor during their day. All three women are sparked by a same-sex kiss and seem reluctant to kiss or embrace their own partners. Clarissa is obsessed with planning Richard's party, Laura with baking her husband's cake, and Virginia with a ceremonial burial of a bird with her nephews and niece. In Act 1, Scene 13, Clarissa suddenly leaves her home to prevent a suicide, just as Laura and Virginia suddenly leave their homes intending to commit suicide. Each time I read this libretto or study the score, I discover more details that connect these three stories. 
So see if you can trace the multiple references to birds, thorns, and flowers when you experience the opera. Phelan McDermott has referred to the experience of staging the hours as similar to putting on three different operas at the same time. However, to a far greater degree than the novel by Cunningham or the film, this opera creates seamless transitions and even brings the three worlds and the three women into direct contact. For example, there are moments in this staging that feel kind of cinematic, like cinematic fade-outs as one set glides backstage into the darkness as another set moves forward. In the Act One transition between scenes 10 and 11, Laura tells her son Richie to feel the sifted flour that they're using to bake the cake, while on the other side of the stage, adult Richard repeats Clarissa's word, wonderful, such that Laura and Richard bridge the temporal gap, creating together the repeated musical phrase, feel wonderful, feel wonderful. As Laura tells Richie, we need four cups of flour, the adult Richard reaches out to her from across stage as though seeing the scene as a vision of his past, thus breaking the temporal barrier as his set glides away. Near the end of the opera, dancers suddenly, stunningly transform Laura into an older version of herself before our eyes, transporting the character from circa 1949 to circa 1989 with a simple costume change and a short walk across the stage. Virginia then appears to watch Laura and Clarissa's dialogue as though witnessing an extension of her novel that she could never have imagined. The most crucial such temporal transgression in the opera occurs in Act Two, Scene Three, when Lewis, Richard's former lover, another former lover, meets Clarissa on the street outside of Richard's apartment, and Lewis begins to recall a summer that the three friends spent together back in Wellfleet. We seem to enter Lewis's mind as Richard suddenly enters the stage appearing young and healthy as he was that long ago summer. The beautiful staging of this trio, there are two trio, big trio numbers um, uh, in this opera, and this is the first one. Uh, the staging, which is beautiful, this trio, and the bird-like woodwind lines transport all of us back to that beach as well. This particular flashback is actually crucial in revealing the magnetic attraction that Richard once possessed and that clearly motivated Clarissa's long-term devotion to him. Music and sound likewise dramatically and surprisingly transcend those temporal barriers of the opera's narrative structure. Putz's representations of water and of bell sounds permeate the entire score. At numerous moments in the opera, a sound in one temporal space, a, a knock on a door, or when Laura dramatically drops the cake into the garbage can, one of those sounds startles a character in another temporal zone. And the separate worlds are most poignantly brought together when musical lines and lyrics overlap, as in that feel-wonderful moment I mentioned. Putz was particularly careful to compose transitions, 
and to connect musically the different settings, thus unifying his score. For example, there is an eighth note syncopated rhythm running throughout much of Act One, Scene Four, which is a flirtatious scene set in a flower shop. I heard this ostinato rhythm as dance-like, flirtatious, almost like a clave pattern in Latin jazz, and I noted that that rhythm carries over into the next scene, back into the world of Virginia Woolf. Putz agreed that his ostinato did a great job at creating a seamless transition, but he informed me that what I called a dance-like flirtatious rhythm was actually composed randomly by translating text into Morse code and then writing out the rhythm. As he put it to me, quote, this was a moment where I realized that ostinato, repeated rhythm, could function in two ways. First, in a fantasy-like way for Clarissa, like a dance, as you said, but when eliminating those lush harmonies and confining the ostinato to a single pitch, it could then signify something very different for Virginia. These transitions were tremendous fun for me to try and accomplish. Could I put the audience in a new environment, but they feel they have no idea how they got there? Before the opera begins, we see clocks in styles from different decades projected onto the scrim, each one displaying the actual time. This is a quite clever way of representing a central theme of this opera are often fraught human experience of inexorable time, an experience clearly shared with all of our predecessors. Time is both told and transcended in this opera. The libretto, the sets, costumes, and music each depict the three different temporal worlds in clever and highly efficient ways. For example, simply replacing a collection of chairs in Clarissa's house with wooden chairs signals a shift to Wolfe's 1920s England. It works. In music, we can seem to fall out of time, as Richard puts it, in two ways. Sustained pitches or chords seem to freeze time by being pulseless. They just hang. Conversely, constant churning rhythms and repetitions of short notes can achieve a similar effect as though we are stuck in a particular moment. No other art form can impact our experience of time to the extent that music can. Putz not only connects the opera's three temporal zones and transcends time in these ways in his score, he also creates stylistic gestures that mark each historical period and delineate each woman's particular personality. I'll now turn to several examples to illustrate just how Putz accomplished this. So first, Clarissa Vaughn in the late 20th century, a part carefully tailored by Putz specifically for Renee Fleming. Clarissa and her New York setting inspired Putz to compose both bustling, bright orchestral music for her urban environment and pastoral, Copeland-esque passages marked by open fourth and fifth intervals and widely spaced chords. Clarissa's optimistic yearning comes through, for example, in the grandeur of the musical setting of the word wonderful, a word she delivers several times in the opera as she hopes all of her planning will somehow make things right. 
Clarissa's character is most clearly depicted in her big aria, which extends to the entirety of Act 1, Scene 9. On her way to Richard's apartment, she finds herself at the very spot where years ago, when they were 19, she had declared to Richard that their romantic relationship was over, was simply something that had happened over a summer. The libretto makes clear that this is an aria by repeating that op opening phrase here on this corner at equal intervals and ending the number with that phrase as well. In addition, Pierce ramped up the poetic style with such lines as, I wandered west crossing Waverly, weaving my nest. The aria opens with solo clarinet, oboe, and flute lines that overlap, creating moments of poignant dissonance. So there's a sustained sort of pedal point, uh, E flat in the strings. We hear the clarinet play. And that melody will be the opening melody and the one she returns to when she sings the phrase here on this corner. The clarinet, you may have noticed, landed on a pitch that is dissonant with the sustained pitch in the strings. And sure enough, when the oboe enters to play the same melody, it hits a note that's dissonant with both of the other pitches. And so each time the uh, woodwinds enter, they are layered in creating dissonance. At the end of that um, opening, the uh, introduction, the woodwinds hit this interval, which I see some nodding recognition. This is a tritone, the most dissonant interval you could compose. So the aria is set up with some poignant dissonance that sort of creates the mood for what Clarissa is going to sing or to tell us through her aria. Those woodwinds, joined soon by the English horn, suggest a pastoral setting, as does the open fifth drone in the violins that's sustained underneath the woodwinds. Why the pastoral tone for this scene set on a Manhattan street corner? Because this is music of nostalgia, specifically for that romantic summer Clarissa spent with Richard at Wellfleet. The music tells us that instead of remembering the fight that they had on that busy street corner, which in her movements Renee Fleming appears to reenact before our eyes, Clarissa's heart is actually remembering that long ago summer at the beach, the pastoral romantic summer. There's a great deal of poignancy composed into her own melodic line um, as well. She sings um, the opening uh, melody that I played already. Here on this corner, you argued with, argued with. There's a tritone again, which works really well with what she's actually singing about, that argument she had with Richard, okay? Um, and... Uh, there, are, there are other dissident moments um, when she sings about how she had been harsh. She lands on an F, which clashes with the E flat in the orchestra. When she says that her, her phrase was like a stab to Richard, again, she clashes. She sings an E flat that clashes with a D and an F in the orchestra. 
Tom. So puts is using dissonance in a very traditional way here to express the emotions that she is experiencing and relating to us uh, throughout her aria. In addition, she sings a mocking melisma, multiple pitches on one syllable, for the line, Adonis from Akron. She's referring to, Richard, you had a lover, uh, the Lewis, the Adonis from Akron. And she sort of mocks that uh, Adonis when she sings the Adonis from Akron. That little melisma sort of milks it, descending melisma. But then she sings another melisma when she refers to Richard's genius. And you had and your genius that sort of lifts up and celebrates the genius, that aspect that she, clearly she found so attractive and magnetic um, about, about him. At this point in the libretto, Pierce's triple alliteration, as Clarissa refers to Richard's jabs, judgments, and genius, guided Putz's rhythmic setting with each J sound falling on the downbeat, on beat one in successive measures. Clarissa then remembers that her own pride played a role in their breakup. And she sings, um, and I had, um, uh, you had your genius, and she sings, and I had my pride, and she holds pride for the high note uh, and repeats that phrase again and receives harmonic support from the orchestra, holding that word and that note as though she's still unwilling to let go of her pride. Let's listen to an excerpt from this aria. Now, each of my video excerpts in this talk will be the ones that were very recently posted online by the Met.
having associated the here on this corner musical motive with Clarissa's nostalgia and that long ago summer romance with Richard, Putz is, Putz is able to bring it back with great emotional impact at several later points. For example, that melody appears in the orchestra when Clarissa tenderly buttons Richard's pajamas in the following scene. It returns with greatest emotional impact in Act 2, Scene 5, before Richard's suicide. Richard, powerfully portrayed by Kyle Kettleson, spends much of that scene balanced on a windowsill, precariously high above the ground. Feeling a premonition, Clarissa has returned earlier than planned to help Richard get ready for the party. We hear an incessant ticking of quarter notes in the strings, which then switch to eighth notes, intensifying as Richard laments the strain of facing each passing hour every day. As he explains that he had hoped to create something good and worthwhile as a writer, the here on this corner motive is heard over and over again, as we'll hear and see now. I wanted to make something good, something true. It didn't have to be great, just something someone might read. Virginia Woolf's world and character are depicted quite differently by Putz and Pierce. Inspired by her novel and other writings, Pierce does a remarkable job conveying Virginia's intelligence and wit with a few moments of clever wordplay. At the start of the opera's third scene, the world of Virginia's study prompts a clear shift in instrumentation toward the woodier sound of bassoons and flutes and a slower tempo, tempo and triple meter, and a thinning of the texture eventually reducing all the way down to a solo piano. In general, much of the music associated with Virginia is archaic, not of the 1920s world, but of the Baroque period, or even earlier. This is particularly clear at the beginning of an aria-like section as she reflects on her husband, so the melody, you'll note, has a turning figure uh, that sounds as though it's coming from the world or the period of Baroque music. 
Okay, it has that lilt to it also. Um, in addition to that ornamentation in the melody, the left hand of the piano, uh, the pianist, is playing fourths and fifths, fourth and fifth intervals, uh, especially in parallel motion, sliding up and down, um, has been a sonic signal for the archaic, for medieval and Renaissance European settings in operas or and film scores. So for instance, um, the piano plays fourth, fourth, fifth, and then a, a chain of uh, descending fourths here. Landing on a fifth. And that open, moving, shifting back and forth, sliding around of those two intervals um, is a sort of by now a traditional signal of something archaic. Virginia is also given alliterative poetic lines by Pierce as she reflects on her husband's situation. Luckless Leonard, chained to me and my larks and my lunacy. In scene five, Virginia comments a good deal on herself as she refers to her lack of faith, puts, composes a biting dissonance on the words religious and God. In this scene, Joyce DiDonato's acting is particularly superb. Every slight movement, gesture, facial expression, and posture seems true to her character. Now, I'm not implying that she is imitating the historical wolf, but that she is using her body and mezzo-soprano voice to create a fully developed character in this scene. Her abrupt and emphatic movements respond to the verbal and musical rhythms created by Pierce and Putz. The woodwind lines marked marcato and staccato reflect her character through musical articulation. In this video excerpt, we will also hear the pure countertenor voice of John Holliday, depicting the mysterious man under the arch, a character I will return to before we end. His melody, played by violins and flutes, underlies Virginia's closing statement, someone will die at the end of the day, associating his character and voice clearly with death. Religious, dear God, she is not. She 
Kutz's most clear musical depiction of a historical time period occurs with the introduction in scene six of Laura Brown, played by Kelly O'Hara. We hear a prominent boogie-woogie bass line, or at least an operatic version thereof, after the chorus announces the date and Los Angeles setting. The orchestra takes on a late 40s swing dance band vibe with some soaring crooner melodies. The chorus even sways en masse like a crooner as they sing, Happy Birthday, Husband Mine. This musical style announces the circa 1950s setting as clearly through sound as the floral wallpaper in Laura's room or her dress or the style of her kitchen and appliances. But as Putz has noted, this is not Laura's own personality reflected musically, but instead is a musical depiction of the conventional, middle-class, oh-so-sunny L.A. world she feels stuck in. We soon realize that Laura, like Virginia, is on the verge of a nervous breakdown, something that is shockingly depicted in Annie B. Parsons' choreography as the dancers frantically shuffle objects in Laura's kitchen and on Virginia's desk simultaneously, intensifying the moment when Clarissa approaches Richard's apartment. Laura, as a reader, and Virginia, as the author, are clearly bound together, though separated by the decades. This is made most evident in the couple intense duets that they share. Virginia even finishes Laura's lines and thoughts. Note in the following excerpt Virginia's juicy dissonance on the word wade, Everything having to do with water is highly significant and marked in this opera. Also note Laura and Virginia's dissonances against the orchestral accompaniment as they express a rather erotic desire to complete one more page.
that Big Ben chime melody also permeates the score and connects Laura with Virginia. The quintessentially London tune of Big Ben in the scores is the score's most obvious quotation, but there are a range of more or less audible musical allusions throughout the score. Clarissa visits a flower shop in scene four, and when the formerly aspirant opera singer Barbara, now the flower shop's owner, played by Kathleen Kim, gives her a welcoming kiss, the scene suddenly slips into fantasy. The chorus, along with the dancers, form a beautiful human bouquet encircling Clarissa and Barbara. This use of flowers, and a later moment when the dancers toss ripped out pages from books, reminded me of the magic achieved with newspaper in the McDermott production of Glass's Satyagraha. Barbara sings of ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-hydrangeas. Aren't you lucky I didn't? Uh, to the tune of Mozart's Queen of the Night, and then of pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-p
In Bartok's opera, we hear a sweeping, ascending, descending gesture featuring the celesta when the sixth door is opened and the lake of tears is revealed to Judith. Rickard's apartment is described as being, quote, like a dreamy underwater space of the subconscious, and it is certainly infused with profound sorrow. However, Putz explained to me that he actually isn't very familiar with either of those two <laughs> earlier operas, though he allowed that the harmonic and melodic style of Strauss's four last songs has influenced him. I now suspect that I only hear a Rosenkavalier reference because the last time I heard Renee Fleming live was in her final performance of that opera at the Met. You might assume that I'd give up attempting to pin down any other illusions in the hours. However, the final scene of the opera begins with the orchestra tolling 24 bell-like chords, clearly a reference to the hours of each day. These chords sound bell-like in part because several of them are structured with an open fifth interval at the top. This rather ceremonial-sounding passage called to my mind the postlude in Stravinsky's Requiem Canticles. Stravinsky scored for celesta, bells, and vibraphone. Putz scored for chimes, vibraphone, and piano. Stravinsky's tempo marking is quartet equals 40 beats per minute. Putz's tempo marking as uh, quarter note equals 42 beats per minute. Richard has died, so perhaps these 24 chords serve as a requiem of sorts or funereal bells for him. I finally decided to ask Kevin and received the following emailed reply, quote, okay, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, admission. Those 24 chords were exactly, all caps, inspired by the orchestration of those Requiem Canticles chords. Wow, impressive. I remember in the first draft before orchestrating, I wrote to myself, orchestrate like Strav, RC, end quote. I must admit, that was one of my favorite emails I've received this year. <laughs> I need to touch on one final striking feature of this opera before we confront the end. In the hours, the chorus plays multiple absolutely essential roles. Like a Greek chorus, they provide commentary and bits of narration and serve as a present character on stage witnessing crucial moments. Like a Brechtian chorus, they bluntly announce the three settings and like Brechtian productions, the, the setting, time, and place are projected on screens. Like a Japanese no chorus, they take over lines from individual characters and help convey the numerous transitions between internal and external voices. The chorus represents the voice of absent characters, of each woman's subconscious, of Virginia's dream mind attempting to write, of the terribly self-critical inner voice of Laura. At other moments, the chorus vocalizes to create atmosphere and a general soundscape emotional setting. The opera opens with a choral prologue, a scene the libretto refers to as almost underwater. The repeated first word, flowers, flowers, is delivered with an obsessive minor third rocking interval, setting the tone for the opening. The chorus is representing Virginia's mind in her sleep as she subconsciously searches for her novel's first sentence. Their fragmented text and murmuring music resembles waves and ripples and even the Doppler effect. 
Indeed, though the costumes of the chorus members suggest the three different time periods, they are unified visually with subtle wave-like watery patterns imprinted on their clothing. Fluid fluidity seems central to their nature as the chorus flows between time periods, setting moods, settings, moods, and the characters' minds. As per normal, the Met Chorus does an outstanding job. And now, the big spoiler moment in my talk. Unlike most any other opera you've ever seen, all three leading female characters live in the end. <laughs> Wolf's actual suicide is referenced in numerous ways in the libretto and staging. You'll note all the watery references to wading through the hours and he's treading water and keep him afloat and etc. etc. However, unlike in the movie, Virginia's suicide is never depicted. It remains for some nebulous future beyond the frame of this opera. The figure of death, however, is physically and audibly present. Now back to that mysterious countertenor, the man under the arch, the arch referring, of course, to Washington Square. We first encounter him in the second scene. He looks at Clarissa, and she appears to hear his melismatic ah line as well, with the libretto noting that she is, quote, intrigued by his siren song. This is significant because at other moments in the opera, it is clear that no character sees or hears him, though they may feel his presence, or as the libretto puts it, feel summoned by this dark angel's siren song. His repeated melodic line is distinctive, he is accompanied by harp and a pentatonic-like, a bell-like motive on celesta moving in parallel fifths. So um, underneath him at one point, um, uh, we hear this. Parallel staccato um, open, um, open fifths. His melody, which gives it an exotic flavor, his melody wanders chromatically, mysteriously. It starts off clearly, to me, in G major. But then something goes askew, and the next thing you know, we're in E flat major, and then God knows where we are, but it ends up coming back to something like G major. Mysterious, chromatic, slipping around between the keys, in that melismatic ah melody that he sings versions of over and over again. In act two, scene one, Laura is in the hotel room and momentarily wonders how she got there. In a flashback, she recalls her arrival in conversation with the hotel clerk. The same countertenor, now dressed in hotel uniform, assumes this role of hotel clerk but the libretto makes clear that he should be understood to be the same being as the man under the arch. This is not just a case of saving money with double casting. Here, he has led her to her room where she is contemplating committing suicide. In this scene, a whole tone scale marks him as exotic and mysterious, just as those pentatonic parallel fifths did earlier. So we hear this scale marking him, accompanying him as hotel clerk. 
The libretto notes at the end of the flashback, quote, he vanishes almost supernaturally. By the way, having the figure of death appear in various guises reminds me of a similar fluid and alluring character in Britain's Death in Venice, a character who also is a hotel uh, clerk at one point and um, brings that character towards death. At various points in the hour, the man under the arch is clearly beckoning to each of the three women, most obviously when he leads Virginia to the very edge of the river. Following Richard's suicide, a silhouette of the man appears in an apartment window as we hear his offstage awe, as though he is delivering a blessing. In the next scene, Act 2, Scene 7, as Clarissa and the dancers mourn over Richard's lifeless body, the man enters, touches the body, which immediately stands up. The man leads Richard off by the hand as Clarissa and the dancers notice nothing, continuing to stare at the space where Richard had lain. I asked the composer why he chose the countertenor voice for this character, and he replied, quote, well, we wanted an otherworldly sound, something that would separate this angel of death character from everyone, allowing him to soar above or through the others. Not only do the three sopranos live, but through the magic of opera, they see and hear each other directly at the end, sitting together, holding hands, and then rising to deliver a final message for us all. They sing texts that we have actually heard several times before in the opera, though when the trio of children sing these words, they do so in ancient Greek. However, Laura and Virginia did sing these lines in English at the end of Act 1, Scene 6. This is the world, and you live in it. Try to be grateful. In the final trio, the text is altered to, here is the world, and you live in it and you try to be. This is an intensely beautiful trio, a life-affirming message through words and music that nevertheless is intensified by multiple dissonant thorns. Um, I won't detail for you, but in the trio, uh, the three voices, especially two of them against Virginia's line, keep clashing with very sharp, pointy dissonances. However, on the reassuring words, not alone, heard earlier in the trio, and the phrase, and you try, at the end, they sing with pure open fifths. I note that the words try to be are on the pitch B natural. Their voices return um, us to the murmuring waves of vocal sound which, which, which the chorus began the opera with. Dissonance drops away as the trio of voices fade their voices becoming beautifully pealing bells ringing out fifths. The final chord shimmers unresolved, but it is not exactly heard or felt as dissonant given the prominent fifth and fourth intervals resonating into an uncertain future. That chord consists of E, A, B, C sharp, D sharp, E, G sharp, B. resonates at the end of the opera. Here is the opera's ending.
In the end, the trio leaves the final word grateful unsung, leaving the opera and their three stories open-ended, as though these three women, like all of us, will continue to reach for closure. Grateful, though unsung, surely resonates in our minds at opera's end, having experienced a couple hours of poignant operatic beauty. Thank you very much. That was Guild lecturer W. Anthony Shepard discussing Kevin Putz's The Hours. The production, featuring Kelly O'Hara, Joyce DiDonato, and Renee Fleming, will be seen live in HD worldwide on December 10th, 2022. For more information, visit metopera.org and make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild, Opera News, and the Metropolitan Opera on all your favorite social media platforms to keep up to date on all things opera. I'm your host, Elspeth Davis, and thank you for listening.